Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. 815,000 people watched all or part of the show last week. And it's only possible thanks to our sponsor, Critical Cosmetics. My good friend, Ravi, about whom more later, brings us this first hour of the mother of all talk shows. Mind you, given the numbers we've racked up, we've put his brand very firmly on the map. And we could do the same for you if you want to sponsor the second hour of the show. Your brand in front of all those eyes. Let me count them up. That's 1.7 million eyes in a week. Admittedly, two of them belonging to the same person. Thank you, Ravi. Thank you, Critical Cosmetics. Please visit their website. Let them know you appreciate them bringing us this first hour of the mother of all talk shows. I don't know what Donald Trump is going to announce tomorrow, though he promises in capital letters that it's going to be bigly. I have a feeling, and indeed I heard a little bird tell me that he's going to announce a running mate, which may indeed surprise everyone. And a running mate that can bring new parts to the coalition that I still believe Donald Trump will assemble to win the Republican nomination for the 2024 presidential election. Note to dollar readers, that does not mean I'm supporting Donald Trump. It just means I think he's going to be the candidate. And if he's up against Joe Biden, I think he's going to be the president. But more about American politics later. Let me start with British politics. The British government, led by a man, I'm told, goes by the name of Rashid Sunak. How would I know? I've hardly set eyes on him since he took office. Whoever he is, wherever he is, he ain't at the front line. Or rather, he may be at the wrong front line. Because Britain has developed a death wish. An economic death wish, that much is common, I think, right across the political class, but maybe literally a death wish. Let me talk about the perhaps literal death wish first. The Royal Marine Commandos, one of whom, once upon a time, I almost was attending their induction into the uh, Corps in uh, the Royal Marine headquarters in Poole in Dorset. They are a fine body of men, and I suppose nowadays also women, though I don't know that for sure. Their commander let the cat out of the bag this week that they have been fighting in the war in Ukraine against 
the Russian Federation against the Russian army. Of course, he didn't use the F word. He said that they had been giving support in highly sensitive political and military theaters. The fact that the British are now admitting that they have soldiers on the ground in Ukraine is, of course, almost a year late in being imparted to the public, and perhaps only then by an unfortunate blurt from a military commander who perhaps was not even authorized to tell us. But it means that the British Armed Forces are in the war in Ukraine without Parliament even being informed, let alone its acquiescence or its agreement sought. This is a clear breach of the precedent set by Tony Blair in the Iraq war, and which many people thought when David Cameron reaffirmed it by putting British involvement in the war in Syria on the floor of the House for a vote, and when he lost that vote, changing course. Many people believed it was now part of Britain's unwritten constitution that our country will not be taken to war without parliamentary approval. But that is clearly now in abeyance. If the commander is right, we are now in a state of war with Russia, with the hypersonically, multiply, ballistically, nuclear-armed superpower, one which could extinguish our entire country with a single multi-warhead rocket and leave Britain in nuclear winter a heap of ash forevermore, killing every living thing on this small island. Not a small thing that, when you think about it, quite a major step for a government to take. We knew, of course, that the British were involved in the destruction of German infrastructure in the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, an act of war, certainly, an act of international terrorism, almost certainly. We knew that the British were involved in the planning of the attack on the civilian Kerch Bridge between the Russian mainland and Crimea. We knew that. We knew that British trainers were undoubtedly involved in training the Ukrainian armed forces, both here in Britain and in Ukraine. We learned this week that British judges are going to give lessons to the Ukrainian judges on how to conduct war crimes trials against Russian POWs. Britain's involvement in the Ukraine is second only to the involvement of the United States. Britain is cruising for a bruising from Russia, and we will be very, very fortunate if we don't get it. We'll be very fortunate if our people and our assets in Ukraine and in Russia remain unscathed as a result of this undeclared, unauthorized, illegal military involvement in somebody else's war somebody who's not even a member of the NATO alliance. 
we'll be lucky if our own country or our assets elsewhere are not subject to Russian retaliation. I know that our defense minister comes from the regiment that mounted the charge of the Light Brigade into the guns, rode the gallant 500 to their deaths. We know that the Royal Marines are highly capable and courageous armed forces. But what if they start coming back in boxes? How are we going to explain a significant number of British military casualties falling in the war in Ukraine that Parliament and the people haven't even been told that we are in? But not only are we in a war with Russia, we are now spoiling simultaneously on two fronts for a war with China. You may not have noticed the significant deterioration in diplomatic relations between Britain and the People's Republic of China this very day. The British have kicked out the Chinese consul in Manchester because of an incident at a protest outside the consulate in which one or more of the protesters made their way over the gate and the wall inside the diplomatic premises that belong to China. It's Chinese territory inside that consulate. But a protester made it in and was manhandled and taken inside to be arrested inside the consulate. The British have kicked out the consul. And China has today gazetted that the British government has failed in its duty under the Vienna Conventions to protect the diplomatic premises and personnel of countries accredited at the Court of St. James and that further Chinese action on this will have to be expected. And so we're not just in a literal war with Russia. We have now begun what may turn out to be maybe a harbinger of a serious diplomatic rupture with China. That is to say, soon the world's biggest economy, when we're literally at war with the planet's richest country, by which I mean the planet with the largest number and amount of natural resources, oil, gas, and all of the other mineral wealth that lies under Russia's soil and waters. That's what you call an economic death wish. Especially when, and it is minus eight degrees where I am this evening, your country is literally chattering its teeth with cold and cannot afford to warm its houses. Especially in a country whose economy is on a helter-skelter downwards and no one knows what the bottom will be like. A country where millions of workers are being forced to take industrial action to demand a wage increase that at least 
minimizes the wage cut that workers have suffered. Take the railway workers, for example. They're on strike because they will not accept an increase of 4% this year, 4% next year, but only if they agree to shut every ticket office in every station in the land, meaning ghost stations where no one works, and agree to the abolition of train guards, meaning only the train driver will be responsible for not just getting you from A to B, but everything that might happen to you on the train. Because he can't stop the train, get off and investigate if something goes wrong on the train, if somebody is harmed on the train, robbed on the train, taken ill on the train, that's the guard's job. So the railway workers, men and women, if they don't accept this 4%, as they have not, are treated as the enemy within. And because the workers in the railway industry are proving remarkably resilient and remarkably popular with the public, with 65% support amongst the public for their strikes, the onslaught of vicious, vile, class hatred to which the railway workers and their leaders are now being subjected has to be experienced to be believed. The Railway Workers Union, the RMT, is hated because it is strong enough and united enough to stand up to the train company's onslaught of pay cuts, for that is what a 4% wage increase actually represents in a country where inflation is currently running at 12%. But here's something remarkable. Almost all of Britain's train companies are owned by foreigners. Most of them are owned by foreign countries. All of these British train companies are being paid massive British taxpayers' subsidies and making bumper profits, which they send back to foreign countries and foreign governments, and thus the British taxpayer is subsidizing the railways in France. You might have thought that all these flag shaggers, all these Union Jack waivers, would be outraged by this, but no. Kelvin Mackenzie, the slime that crawled out of Rupert Murdoch's belly, is turning up the volume on his hatred of railway workers in general and their leader, Mick Lynch, in particular. Piers Morgan, who talks to fewer people than one of the railway workers' picket lines on a daily basis for millions of pounds from the aforementioned Rupert Murdoch, 
is also on the warpath against the railwayman's leader whom he accuses of loving to see himself on TV. Morgan loves himself on TV so much he's prepared to go on TV and speak to nobody at all just so he can see himself on a TV screen. Somebody called Richard Maidley, a telly dolly, a man who can barely read off an auto cue, but takes great care in the blow drying of his dyed blonde locks, unleashed a vicious tirade against the railwoman's leader, eventually tell him to jog on. This is on British national television. Tomorrow, the British nurses go on strike. Do you remember them? Do you remember on a Thursday night clapping them? Every Thursday, we clap them on our doorsteps from Land's End to John O'Groats. The government will not even negotiate with them as they try to mitigate their pay cut, which is what the current wage offer, just like the railway workers, is, of course. The postal workers, your friendly postman or postwoman, who in all weathers, and because we're British, oftentimes in shorts, in sub-zero temperatures, bring your mail to your door every day, say good morning, pass the time of day with you, pat your dog. They're being hammered into the ground also by the same British government that this week announced another £125 million worth of military aid to the Ukraine. This is a death wish, all right. An economic death wish, a diplomatic death wish, and a political death wish. Now, I don't have much time to touch on the other subjects we'll be discussing tonight. But let me just say that Joe Biden, who ran for office as the man who would bring about an end to the war in Yemen, who said that the perpetrators of the war against the poorest country in the Arab world, one of the poorest countries in the entire world, was simply unconscionable and had made its perpetrators pariahs that he was not going to deal with. That Joe Biden is currently whipping in the U.S. Senate against a motion tabled by somebody called Bernie Sanders to force the American government to come to Congress and explain why, after all these pre-election promises, Joe Biden is still up to his neck in the war in Yemen. And the pariahs ain't pariahs anymore. And guess what happened? Joe Biden said he didn't want this motion.
to go before the U.S. Senate. And so Bernie Sanders, the water boy, for an anti-union, pro-imperialist, so-called Democratic Party, pulled the motion off the floor. Bernie Sanders' political career died today, not with a roar, but with a whimper. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night on the mother of all talk shows. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 220KM develops the most unique and nutrient-rich ingredients and cosmetics in the world and regenerates native ecosystems, healing the earth for future generations. These are nature's ingredients, simplified. Their secret is in the unique processing techniques used for nutrient retention, freeze-drying and stone-grinding, zero biomass waste. All products, including their face and hair mask powders, are all natural and food grade, making them as safe for your body as the ingredients in their original form. 220KM Inc. wants you to experience the critical brands of cosmetics and ingredients they offer this holiday season. And to ensure you will, they're offering free shipping to Canada, USA, Europe, UK, and Australia. Just purchase any two items from their online store and you will be eligible for free shipping. Try their all-natural, chemical-free, zero-waste face and hair powders or get creative in the kitchen. I do with their collection of nutrient-rich ingredients. Why not try them? Visit 220kminc.com today. You are listening to the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Now, do visit that website, please. The poll is going good. Oh, is Twitter a better place since Elon Musk took over? On my Twitter uh, feed, it's yes, 75, no, 25. On Telegram, it's yes, 78, no, 22. Something like 7,000 people have voted so far. Make sure you get your vote in. Now, Dan Cohen is a celebrated journalist and filmmaker and maker of one of the most important 
and Timaeus films of the year. He has just completed a documentary on Haiti, just as Haiti falls apart all over again and might even be the next site of a massive U.S. landing of troops. Dan Cohen joins us now. Dan, a great pleasure uh, to uh, see you here on the, on the mother of all talk shows. I promise you we'll talk about Haiti, but I wanted to uh, ask you about the Yemen first, because I know you have, like me, an abiding interest in it. Joe Biden said he'd end the Yemen war. What happened next? Well, it's incredible uh, that that series of events, how that played out. I mean, as a candidate, progressives, basically many of many of us, myself excluded, I did not for, vote for Joe Biden, I will say, but we were we were sheepdog to voting for Joe Biden on the uh, premise that he would end the war in Yemen. Um, this genocidal, horrific machine that is uh, starving children to death. And this was the reason that we had to vote for Joe Biden. And as soon as he get in, get in, uh, came into office, he made a statement saying that he was ending offensive operations in, in Yemen, uh, U.S. support for offensive operations. But it was really just um, a trick because he didn't say, well, we're ending defensive operations. And then... Uh, so it was just a lie. And then the support for offensive operations continued. And he was hailed by progressive media. I remember at the time, of, thank you, Joe Biden, for ending U.S. support in this horrible war. And he got all of this credit for doing absolutely nothing. And now, what, two years later, Bernie Sanders makes the most mild attempt, gets browbeaten and withdraws without even trying. It's just about the most um, pathetic uh, display in in recent memory um and it really just symbolizes everything wrong with the democratic party and why it's you know where where the left goes to die well it's uh it's a simple morality tale uh don't trust these people the next time they come selling you that dodgy bill of goods uh i wonder uh, what bernie sanders does now how does he hold his head up now. It is an extra, it's an act of political suicide by Bernie Sanders. Yeah, it's just an incredible display of cynicism from Joe Biden and whoever's controlling him, because clearly he's not in charge, and, and, and a total display of cowardice from the progressives led by Bernie Sanders. And it's you know, honestly, it's typical of Bernie Sanders at this point who um, allowed the Democratic Party in 2016 to undermine him and put Hillary Clinton forward as the candidate who would go on to lose to Donald Trump and then basically um, allowed them to do the same thing in 2020. So this is Bernie Sanders who ultimately just always bows to the powers. He kisses the rings of the Democratic Party, and that's exactly what he did uh, with this Yemen resolution. Now, uh, talk about timing. Uh, tell us about your uh, film on Haiti and describe, if you will, uh, since your camera stopped rolling, what's happened? Um, well, so the film is called Another Vision Inside Haiti's Uprising. And myself and Haiti Liberté journalist Kim Ives and I uh, made it starting in July 2021, right when the president of Haiti, Jovenel Moise, was assassinated 
uh, in his house. And we basically went to investigate what the situation was. Um, and there's no clarity about the really any any clarity about the assassination of the president. But what is clear and what we show in the film, which is a three part series, is that there is a popular uprising going on in Haiti. And at the center of that, an armed federation called the G9 or the, the revolutionary forces of the G9 family and allies, a bit of a mouthful, commonly known as the G9, led by a figure named Jimmy Barbecue Cherizier. He's a former cop who uh, has uh, now gone completely against the system. Um, and he has federated a series of what are essentially neighborhood self-defense groups um, in order to overthrow the, the ruling class, which has kept Haiti um, in chains and in the, the worst possible conditions for, for decades and decades. Um, and so if you Google anything about Jimmy Barbecue Cherizier, you'll read in Western media that he's a mass murderer, that he's um, committed a series of massacres um, and all of these horrible things about him. But what our investigation in the documentary, uh, which you'll see in, in the first episode, it's a, as I said, it's three parts. Um, we show that this is uh, is a um, essentially CIA disinformation campaign to portray this revolutionary figure or would be revolutionary figure as some kind of mass murderer. Very similar um, to the Duma attacks, uh, the, the, the Duma incident in Syria. Um, this sort of thing, these sort of disinformation operations. So um, we also show um, the formation of this group. We show its revolutionary activity, its social programs, um, providing for the, the residents of the neighborhoods. Um, and then we show the, the kind of ideological struggle that they are in um, trying to you know, get people who are living in these horrible conditions, living in sewage, uh, literal lakes of sewage um, to to understand what their what their program is. So um, we you know really encourage everyone to watch it because it's it's a it's a crucial moment as the U.S. is is uh, dead set on uh, U.S. In, on an invasion uh, of Haiti once again. Kim has been on the show several times actually, and he warned us uh, a year ago. Uh, he warned us that uh, this characterization of the insurgency, the uprising in Haiti as gangs and as uh, purely criminal elements was a serious mistake. Even if, of course, in the, uh, in the grand scheme of things, the real criminals in Haiti are not living uh, down in the slums. They're living uh, up on the hills in their white... Uh, 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 antebellum uh, mansions, but he was making the point that there will be an effort to mischaracterize the, this mass of proletarian and even lumpen proletarian masses in Haiti as purely criminal, as, uh, as a, a paving of the way for another American invasion. So you reckon the U.S. are going to invade and what will they meet when they do in that case? Well, yes, Kim is. You're you're absolutely right in in, in your analysis there, and and Kim in what you described from Kim too. I mean, the the conflation of criminal gangs, what you can credibly call gangs in Haiti, uh, with the complete opposite, with anti-crime gangs, um, has been that's that's been the the aim and result of this disinformation campaign. 
um, in order to discredit the only force that would really stand up to a U.S. invasion. Um, the prospects of a U.S. invasion of Haiti are very, very real. The thing is, the U.S. knows that um, Haiti Haitians are very sensitive to foreign interference, particularly from the United States. And in the event of a mass invasion, you know, 20, 25,000 Marines uh, entering Haiti, there would be some kind of mass uprising against it. So the U.S. is seeking to um, give it a sort of multilateral uh, look and do it in a more covert way, um, whether through the U.N. Security Council, where it has been attempting to to get uh, the other uh, members on board for for an intervention or an invasion, um, but has failed because of opposition uh, from Russia and China um, and is now seeking a number of other ways. But the U.S. very much prefers to um, do it in a in covert operations, you know, not the Bush style kind of mass invasion, but Obama style uh, secret, you know, secretly and, and using proxies. Um, and it has been it has been training um, forces inside the Haitian National Police and is putting forth the opposition right now. Actually, um, there is a process of regime change. What I th- what I could what I would call regime change in Haiti, uh, spurred by the United States, where it is abandoning the ruling party of the PHTK, which is a uh, sort of the neo Duvalierist party um, of of de facto Prime Minister Ariel Henry because he's seen as a U.S.-backed dictator, and that's not good for U.S. aims. So the U.S. is now sanctioning several members of that party and several of the big oligarchs uh, who, are, who, who are allied with it. And the U.S. is in the process of switching to the political opposition, which is uh, it has also groomed. It's called the Montana Accord, um, and it's equally as, as corrupt and, and uh, elite. Um, and that's the, the plan is to put the Montana Accord into power. And then once the Montana Accord is in, is in power, then the U.S. Uh, will initiate this um, this invasion of sorts. Um, and and, you know, what happens there remains to be seen. But, um, you know, the U.S., like I said, is very sense. It knows that Haitians are very sensitive to to the idea of uh, U.S. Uh, uh, U.S. interference meddling. And so that's why uh, they're very careful about this. Indeed, they were the first uh, country to uh, kick out the colonialists and slavers, in this case uh, of France, centuries ago. They are a proud people. And uh, they've been going through this agony. Now, you're the expert, not me, but it seems to me that since the U.S. overthrew Aristide, the, the situation has gone from bad to worse in Haiti. Is that right? Well, without a doubt. I mean, after uh, the the U.S. couped Aristide for the second time, um, there have basically been a series of Haiti has become a complete picture of a neoliberal state, even even worse than it was before, where there are no services provided whatsoever for the people, um, and it's purely uh, uh, it's an NGO state where you know foreign billionaire NGOs um, basically pour money in that is then siphoned back into the into the pockets of you know contractors here in Washington DC that was particularly the case um, after the 2010 earthquake when some 13 billion dollars were pledged to Haiti from the so-called international community and approximately one percent of that went to actual Haitians 
Um, and this was, you know, a project led by the Clintons. And that's, and that's been the, the regime that has been in ever since is the PHTK, the one that uh, Hillary Clinton basically as Secretary of State in 2010, 2011 put into place. But now that regime has been so sullied uh, in the eyes of Haitians, and correctly so. It's a completely corrupt, horrific regime, um, That, but it's outlived its usefulness for the United States. And so um, now the United States, as I said, now, is putting forth this other, this other group. I, I think that the, uh, I think it was Joe Biden, correct me if I'm wrong, who once said that it wouldn't matter to the U.S. Uh, if Haiti sank to the bottom of the sea. Uh, apart from the fact that it's inhabited by many millions of human beings, what is the significance of Haiti to the Americans? You know, I think when Joe Biden said that, I don't know exactly what he's thinking, but uh, Haiti is very strategic for the United States. So sort of a mischaracterization of the role that, that Haiti plays in kind of the, the, the great chessboard, the grand chessboard for the United, United States. Of course, it provides incredible amounts of, of cheap labor, huge amounts of cheap labor, cheap labor. And in the bifurcation of the global economy with uh, U.S. corporations moving out of China, for example, um, there's, a, there's an emphasis on looking for uh, sources of cheap labor once again. And Haiti provides that with its sweatshops um, where the oligarchs make huge amounts of money. And then if you look, there are also resources, uh, natural gas, oil, um, that has been found, which is, you know, obviously important for the United States. There are, uh, I believe, uranium deposits um, and others. And then if you look at the, uh, the, the region, there's a lot of revolutionary activity in the Caribbean. Um, the U.S. fears that Haiti could become another Cuba, the island just, you know, some, uh, uh, just to its west. And so, um, uh, the U.S. will not or w would not like to allow uh, Haiti to fall out of its grasp because then, of course, what happens with the Dominican Republic, what happened with, with which it shares uh, uh, the island, what happens um, with uh, Puerto Rico to its east, Venezuela is nearby. So uh, the, the prospect of a, of a revolution um, in which Haiti falls out of or, or takes itself out of uh, the U.S. orbit is very threatening, and that's that's a primary reason that uh, the United States is so intent on carrying out a military invasion to stamp out this uh, revolutionary activity. Well, as I said, great timing. Where can people see the first episode, Dan? You can go to uh, my YouTube channel. It's called Uncaptured Media. That's what all these letters are behind me. Um, and all three episodes are on there for free. There's 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 three episodes. Um, it, uh, and, you know, I just really encourage everyone to, to watch it and, and understand what is what's going on in Haiti. There's not really anyone else reporting on this. And there's frankly a lot of confusion. This um, CIA disinformation campaign has been incredibly successful. And I think, you know, ourselves and myself and, and Haiti Liberté, which is Haitian led, ha ha Haiti Liberté has led the way on this. This is Haitians leading the way on this project, really. Um, we're the only ones that have been challenging this this kind of State Department CIA narrative. So, um, you know, I appreciate you having us on, George, and, and everyone just just check it out. Another vision Welcome. inside uh, Haiti's uprising is the documentary. More power to your elbow. Dan Cohen, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. The poll is, is Twitter a better place since Elon Musk took over easily uh, two thirds majority 
for Musk, actually a three-quarters majority on uh, average. Uh, so if you're watching uh, Mr. Musk, people do think it's a better place, but it needs to be a better place still. I'm very glad that my good friends Garland Nixon and Jackson Hinkle have been reinstated to the platform today, but I'm still demanding in court the removal of the false label that your company, your executives that you fired, and some of whom are suing you, uh, falsely placed on my own account uh, just months ago, but at very, very great cost. Great legal cost to me uh, in taking this case all the way to the High Court in Dublin, and a massive cost in my reach on your platform. I have 440,000 followers, yet the last time I looked, not even 2,000 of them were interested to view a video of me being arrested, carried off by the police, upside down, and giving a television interview as I was being carted off to prison. Only 2,000 of my 440,000 followers had any interest in seeing the man they follow being carted off to Greenock Jail. You know that's a lie, Mr. Musk, and I know it's a lie. You know that you are shadow banning me, and I know it. Everybody knows it, so why not either admit it and justify it or drop it and compensate me for everything you have cost me? Uh, this from Greg. Uh, George Galloway, I just got here, but can you say hell in Haiti where $120 billion worth of oil has just been discovered there? Surely that is heaven. And uh, Monkey Boy says, Recycled Transport Secretary Mark Harper, I've never heard of him either, previously resigned over the employment of an illegal immigrant. Harper makes former transport secretaries Kant Shapps and Michael Green look competent. Grant Shapps and Michael Green are, of course, the same person because we actually had a member of our cabinet briefly, wasn't he briefly the Home Secretary? Under Liz Truss, he's a man with multiple aliases. Stephen Mulholland. It's a very in joke, but Richard Madeley only <laughs> Richard Madeley only has nine more shoplifting days to Christmas. I've no idea what he means. Fodor is in Norway and wants to talk about Haiti. Go ahead, Fodor. Uh, hello, hi. Uh, yeah, you were talking about hi. Haiti, and uh, I have heard that there's just some parts of the government that uh, government in Haiti that actually wants international assistance and a possibly armed assistance and boots on the ground. But some people, and I heard you and your guest uh, call it invasion, and I have heard other people call it intervention, and that is very negative, those two. So I was wondering if you could explain to people the differences between these three things and why, why you think it's an invasion and not an assistant, international assistance, uh, armed uh, assistance, sorry. 
Well, maybe because I've lived quite a bit longer than you and have seen the benefits of American interventions in all kinds of places, not just in the Caribbean. Uh, they intervened in Grenada, for example, and uh, had to fight their way through heroic resistance from airport workers, construction workers working on the airport. That was Ronald Reagan's only successful military intervention. I've seen multiple invasions of Haiti by United States forces. I've seen American invasions everywhere since from uh, Lebanon to Afghanistan. I know that nowadays it's embarrassing to call things an invasion. You call it a mission, I think, nowadays. It's embarrassing even to say that you're uh, sending uh, uh, military operatives. You send trainers to uh, train the locals into fighting for themselves. All of these, Fodor, are mere euphemisms. The United States, as the film uh, that Dan Cohen has made will, I'm sure, make clear, is intervening in Haiti to forestall the, pop, the possibility of popular power, poder popular, in Haiti. And they've tasted popular power before when the Reverend Father Aristide was the president. He had to be overthrown by the United States because he was revolutionizing the island, uh, the state and its people. He was revolutionizing the uh, juxtapositions that exist there between the ultra-rich and the desperately poor, and he was revolutionizing Haiti's international relations with countries uh, like Cuba. And, uh, of course, the proximity of Venezuela uh, to Haiti, the proximity of Cuba to Haiti are important parts of this story. Thanks, Fodor, for the call. Donald is in Inverness. Donald, welcome to the show. Welcome, George. Good to hear you. Thanks very much. Uh, you've got Thank very you. important international questions tonight, but I'm coming to something that's time-bound. That is, the, the World Cup football will soon be over. And I wanted to ask your opinion, particularly on the England-France game, because I find it difficult to respect the French team after watching them play England. Now, I know it's a physical game, but as far as I could see, the French did not only play football, but they engaged in arm, arm wrestling. And whenever one of the English forwards get anywhere near the ball in the box, uh, you know, the French defenders just wrestled them to the ground instead of tackling the ball. And I couldn't understand why the referee was allowing them off with this. So I was thinking to myself, what's, what's your take on that? Were you, no, none of the commentators seemed to comment on that. They seemed to just accept it as normal. And I wondered what you thought about it. Well, they were doing it again uh, tonight against Morocco, where they were uh, fortunate uh, not to have their early lead equalized. Uh, for almost all of the second half, Morocco were overwhelmingly the better team, and they were doing exactly the same again. Donald, I'm in the most unfortunate position. With all uh, my love uh, to my Argentinian friends, I cannot support either France or Argentina. I actually don't care which of the two of them win. 
I suppose on balance I would prefer uh, France, which is a mainly African team. Uh, no Africans in the Argentina team, and I'd like to see Africa get its hands on the on the World Cup. But the uh, the wrong two teams are in the World Cup final, which is a pity because I think the World Cup has been an outstanding success. Qatar have done an outstanding job in staging it. All the Qatar walling critics and the virtue signaling uh, brigade have been confounded. Everyone who was there absolutely loved it. There's been no trouble except on the pitch and uh, no drunkenness, no licentiousness, no uh, none of the things that normally accompany World Cup tournaments. I think that uh, Qatar are to be commended and FIFA are to be commended for having given the World Cup to Qatar because it worked out splendidly and we have to be gracious enough to acknowledge that. Morocco have been the team of the tournament for me, fantastic defensively except in the first five minutes this evening, uh, but also skilled and their, uh, their throwback style, their retro uh, style, zona mista style from the Italian football of the late 70s and 80s was a joy to behold. There'll be a few teams picking up that style and a few teams picking up some of the star players from Morocco, uh, particularly in the midfield. Donald, thanks uh, for that uh, call. We've got another great journalist coming up after the break, Michael Tracy, a man who never writes a word that I don't seek out and read, one of the best commentators in the world today and he's all ours after the break and we'll be of course taking as many of your calls as we can uh, possibly fit in. We'll be talking with Michael about the war in Ukraine, about Britain's newly declared part in the war on Ukraine, about the unlimited subventions of hundreds of billions of dollars from the hard-pressed taxpayer of the United States to the war in Ukraine. The escalation of supplying Patriot missiles uh, to the Ukrainian regime, the escalation in sending drones to attack Russian bases 400 miles inside the country, i.e. farther inside the country than Moscow and the Kremlin itself. People like to chat SH1T about Putin. But I'll tell you something. If Putin wasn't there, if somebody else was there in the Kremlin, the whole of Ukraine would be on fire. The whole of Ukraine would be flattened. Putin is showing incredible self-restraint in the face of these provocations. And he might not be able to do that for much longer. Pressure is mounting for a massive attack through Belarus, which is a very short journey to Kiev, through Belarus and all the way to Transnistria to leave a NATO rump state in the far west of Ukraine, no bigger than the other. NATO protectorate.
called Kosovo, where trouble is again brewing. So thanks, uh, Ravi, for the sponsorship uh, of the first hour. From now on, Ravi will be sponsoring only every other week. So every second week, he will sponsor the first hour, which means I'm not just now looking for a sponsor for the second hour. I'm looking for a sponsor for the first hour every other week. If you could be that sponsor, or if you know someone who might be interested in putting their name, their brand, in front of millions of people on a weekly basis for as cheap as you could possibly imagine in television terms, please contact us on our website, moats.tv. Now, to call Michael Tracy a journalist and a political commentator is like saying that Lionel Messi is a footballer. Michael Tracy is one of the world's best journalists and best political commentators. And I'm very glad that he's joining us now on the mother of all talk shows. Michael, thanks uh, for doing so. Let me start, if I may, uh, with the rather shocking news to some that British Royal Marine Commandos are admitting that they are involved in the war in Ukraine. It's not shocking that they are involved. It's shocking that they are admitting it. Was that a mistake by the military officer concerned? Or is this a deliberate escalation of British rhetoric? Well, first of all, I'm flattered and a bit intimidated by the messy comparison. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> and I guess I, I don't know what that portends in terms of who I should root for in the final with France. But maybe that's getting far afield from our discussion here. Um, you know, one thing that was amazing to me is I happened to be in London myself when the Times first reported in April that there was a UK Special Forces deployment inside physically Ukraine. And I was so struck that it barely seemed to cause a ripple in the British media. Now, I have many qualms with American media, and we could spend hours going through them in great detail. But I do think if it were reported by one of the premier newspapers in the United States that there was a boots on the ground U.S. military presence inside Ukraine in contradiction of what had been assured to the public by Biden, where he repeatedly assured Americans and voters that that would not be the case, there would be no boots on the ground deployment. If such news were reported, in one of the main papers of the country, that would have caused a bit of a stir, I would think. But it really, the reaction wasn't even muted in the UK as far as I could ascertain. It was basically non-existent. And so we've been left to read the tea leaves since April, every now and then for one outlet or another, typically just the Times, to deign to give us a brief update on the status of these apparent UK Special Forces operating inside Ukraine, and there was one just yesterday where finally this leading commander uh, in some, I think he's called a commando, is that right? I might have the ranking. Yes, commandos, yes. Right. Uh, he was giving some sort of public address where he seemed to maybe even slip up, or he was a bit more forthright than you would expect given the code of silence that seems to reign 
in the UK special forces to an even greater extent, perhaps, than in the US special forces, because in the US, you know, there is a comparable code of silence in some respects, but there tends to be also a lot of bravado among the special forces and stuff leaks out pretty quickly. And there's fairly fulsome reporting done in due course about the nature of these deployments often. You know, it only took, a, you know, maybe a couple of weeks or even a matter of months at most for it to be leaked out who shot the final bullet at Osama bin Laden during that raid in 2011, right, in Pakistan, when, as far as I can recall, the territorial integrity of Pakistan was not respected when that raid was carried out by the United States. Um, but anyway, it, you know, there's been, the information has been so scant for, about this UK Special Forces deployment You'd almost think the most of the British media just doesn't have any interest, or if they do, they're not evincing it. So, you know, but it is significant because who's to say what sort of scenario this could lead to in theory, right? If there is a special forces deployment involved in what they call discrete operations inside Ukraine, obviously the UK is a NATO country. There would be some theoretical collective defense obligations should those forces get embroiled in some sort of direct hostilities with Russia. We don't even know exactly what they've been doing. I've heard rumors and um, hunches floated for months, but you know, you don't want to report or anything, or at least I don't, without being able to have sort of verifiable, tangible proof of these rumors. So I won't articulate the rumors. I'll just note that there's been a lot of you know, uh, speculation as to what these special forces have precisely been doing inside Ukraine for quite some time. And so for now to be, for it to be confirmed for the first time since the war started, that these special forces have been undertaking operations beyond what would have been customary for them to do, quote unquote, insofar as escorting diplomatic personnel or guarding the embassy or um, doing sort of duties that you might associate with a uh, attache in, uh, in any foreign country. Um, and they've been doing other discrete operations that are unspecified. You know, the imagination runs wild. And it's very, it's not yes, difficult uh, to foresee I, I, how that I, could you know, lead to something more, much more extreme than we've yet experienced. Well, quite, uh, and we'll turn to what those could be. But the... Uh, we don't have a constitution, as you know. That's not necessarily the handicap, it seems, because, hey, you've got a constitution in the United States and it hasn't stopped all kinds of egregious uh, crimes against the people and the world. Uh, but we don't have a constitution. But insofar as we have custom and practice, it ought to have been brought to Parliament uh, um, as uh, both Tony Blair in the Iraq war case I cited earlier and David Cameron on the, Lib uh, on the Syrian war, it ought to have been brought to Parliament, at least to Parliament's notice. Now, you see, the, the fish rots from the head, Michael. One of the reasons there's nothing in the media is because there's nothing in Parliament. There's nobody causing a problem for the government in regard to this in Parliament. If there was uh, a substantial opposition to it, even a guerrilla of half a dozen members of Parliament, as existed, for example, under the leadership 
of Tony Benn uh, during the Yugoslav war uh, in the 90s, then there would be reportage. But there's no reportage of this until the horse's mouth spoke in the case of the military officer. So uh, we're now in the war. We're not just funding it. We're not just arming it. We're not just propagandizing for it. We're not just diplomatically intervening, as Boris Johnson did in his unscheduled uh, hasty flight to Kiev, just in case Zelensky was tempted by the idea of a negotiated settlement. We're in the war. So why shouldn't Russia fight us in the war? Well, there were comments made earlier this fall by Sergei Lavrov at a meeting at the United Nations. So this probably was around late September during the most recent General Assembly meeting or during the annual General Assembly meeting in, in New York. And Sergei Lavrov essentially put forth a legal justification for why Russia would be within its rights to strike at the United States. And this could also very conceivably apply just as well to the United Kingdom at this point. But Lavrov was specifically addressing the United States and presenting an argument invoking the strictures of international law in order to articulate why it is that Russia would be within its rights to strike American targets at that, this point because the United States had forfeited any claim, according to Lavrov, to military neutrality vis-a-vis -vis the conflict, not only with its provision of armaments to a particular warring party, that being Ukraine, but also the operational coordination between the United States and Ukraine, and the whole host of other means by which the United States has effectively intervened in the conflict. And with the UK essentially being, sorry to say, the poodle once more of the United States in this regard, you could very well see the same logic being applied to the UK if push were to come to shove. And that's just something that's been so glossed over over the course of this entire war, in part due to, I think you're right, the total abdication of not just the parliament in the UK, but also the Congress in the United States to exert any oversight of any real significance over the nature of the their respective government's conduct in the war, so that such that these scenarios, like the one that was explicitly forewarned by Lavrov, are barely even contemplated as worth taking into account with respect to how policy is getting formulated in the U.S. and the U.K. You know, I, it's funny that you talk about when you mention Parliament essentially ignoring the issue, it brings to mind a not so noble memory on my part or an ignoble memory on the part of a particular labor MP that I talked to when I covered this protest that was one of the more amazing protests I've ever witnessed in London, you know, in Westminster in April, where it was ostensibly this pro-labor march, meaning organized labor, trade unions. It's, they were presenting themselves as having organized this Ukraine solidarity march. And it was just a pro-war march. They actually walked past the Ministry of Defense and were beckoning the Ministry of Defense personnel to come out on the streets and join their march. Now, I don't recall any 
ostensibly labor-oriented march ever beckoning a Tory defense ministry to come participate in their protest activity. It seems like they're not actually protesting much of anything if that's what their disposition is. And I talked to a labor MP, sorry, not a particularly memorable person, so his name is escaping me. I can find it in a minute if you're anybody was actually interested. Just you look up my Substack, it's from April. And I was struck because it was a very similar dynamic, but maybe in reverse as to what was going on in the United States at the time. The Labour MP, to the extent that he had any criticism then of the incumbent Conservative Party administration, at that time, Boris Johnson, his only criticism was that he hadn't gone far enough in arming Ukraine or being bellicose enough against Russia. That was his big criticism of UK policy at that point. It was very, it was like a mirror image, a funhouse mirror of basically what the prevailing criticism of Republicans had been for quite some time toward the Biden administration earlier in the war. People think now that, you know, the, the main strain of critique in the Republican Party in the US is this MAGA isolationism where they're, you know, secretly pro-Russia or they're skeptical of Ukraine aid. Yeah, there is a faction of that tendency, although I think it's very much exaggerated in terms of its significance. But for the, for the thrust of the war, the criticism coming out of the Republican Party toward the Biden administration was the same as the labor critique of the conservative party in that they were criticizing and denouncing Biden for even appeasing Putin for not being bellicose enough in sending, for example, MiG jets to Ukraine. Remember Biden vetoed ostensibly that plan that Poland had proffered at one point in April or May, or not sending, you know, long or not enough range missiles, or just essentially not being as proactive as they would have liked in waging a thoroughgoing war effort on Ukraine's behalf. And this is a perverse dynamic that you Incredible. see transatlantically, such that it almost doesn't even occur to many people in the media or many people I in remember, power that there's I remember, any dissension at all on this issue. Yeah. I, I remember your writing on that demonstration uh, very clearly. It was extremely uh, powerful, further, uh, further illustrating how the terms left and right, because actually most of the people on that demonstration, including the trade union banners that were there were carried by uh, one class or other of Trotskyite, either former Trotskyite or current serving uh, Trotskyite. So if that's left, uh, I sure ain't left. Uh, but I'm puzzled by NATO, and I need your uh, help on it, Michael. They're, they're hot and cold. One minute there, the, the, you can read between the lines that they think there might need to be a settlement. Sometimes Schultz makes a statement, sometimes Macron, which seems to indicate uh, a wish to settle this matter politically uh, by negotiation. And then the next minute, Blinken is more or less, having initially denied it, more or less admitting that the U.S. gave the green light to Ukrainian drone attacks uh, on, on a Russian nuclear military bases. Imagine the story that would have been in any other decade since the Second World War. Uh, and uh, then Biden, first of all, not sending the MiGs, but now is going to announce apparently sending the Patriots, which is a major escalation in the conflict, of course, because if, uh, 
if you're going to put patriots around uh, the infrastructural targets that Russia is systematically demolishing, then Russia will have to up the, uh, the firepower of the weaponry it's using against those targets. And then we're in to an entirely new and ultimately potentially fatal ballpark. What's the real NATO intention here in your view? Well, I think there's a bit of tomfoolery going on with these gestures toward the desire on the part of some NATO members to want to negotiate and some others maybe being more gung-ho because ultimately the decision maker is the United States, right? It's not as though Slovenia sure. is really going to be decisive in its attitude toward res resolving the conflict, right? So, um, sure. You really have to look more at the United States in terms of gauging what the prevailing sensibility is. And the prevailing sensibility in the United States, I think, ought to be best gleaned by looking at what actions are being undertaken by the United States rather than the sometimes contradictory rhetoric that comes out of different players within the administration or Congress. Even for a while, around the midterm term elections last month, there was a point at which General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, seemed to be publicly indicating that he was in favor of broaching the topic of initiating negotiations between Ukraine and Russia. And now, I th and I think that was very much over-interpreted by some as indication that that was actually the trajectory of what US policy was going to be, because there was no change in the policy at all. It doesn't mean anything if Mark Milley ostensibly alludes to how it might be a good idea to vaguely notionally start negotiations if underlying those suggestions is no alteration whatsoever in the actual course of the policy. The course of the policy can be seen in the fact that the Biden administration submitted to Congress its largest request for supplemental appropriations for Ukraine of the entire war, including surpassing the 40 billion that was ultimately enacted by Congress last May of supplemental uh, appropriations. Now, Congress has yet to put forward a bill on that yet as the sort of lamed up, lame duck period in Washington, D.C. draws to a close, but there probably will be something to that effect coming out soon. So if they're allocating more money than ever to the war effort, and every week or so, there's another escalation in the caliber of weaponry that's being deployed by the United States. And by the way, on the MiGs, that's always been in the works, where the U.S. is just kind of looking for some other uh, second or third party to facilitate those transfers of jets. Now, actually, Slovenia, now that I brought them up sort of sardonically, they're apparently going to be involved in some transfer of jets to, um, to Ukraine. So it's not as though the U.S. ever gave up on that prospect, right? But the, the Patriot batteries are very significant because I was in uh, Yeshev, Poland, right after the war started because I wanted to observe the buildup of basically the U.S. proxy war force on the immediate periphery of Ukraine in Poland. And the base that looked to be ad hoc at first or to be temporary that the U.S. had set up to sort of organize these weapons transfer programs, that, as I, as I learned when I was at the NATO summit in June, the U.S. announced that that base would become permanent. So it's not as though this is just a limited excursion or something. This is kind of a precursor to what seems to be a permanent buildup on the periphery of Ukraine 
uh, and even inside Ukraine itself. And it would, there's a very good chance that were these, if these batteries are indeed installed and deployed to Ukraine, as has been reported that they will be, that that would have to come with some sort of direct U.S. operational involvement, maybe even surpa uh, surpassing what we've seen thus far in terms of the operational coordination of the war. Because go to Yeshev, Yeshev Poland, where these Patriot batteries already have been installed starting in March, April. It takes a huge supporting crew on the U.S.'s part to manage and oversee those installations. They're very complex systems. They take a lot of specialized training. I mean, these are this is proprietary United States software, right? It's not just something that can be easily transferred to whomever wants it around the world. That's why the U.S. is the one operating this base in Poland. Yeah, I mean, they're, it's obviously at the invitation of the Poles, and there's some, you know, uh, joint coordination there. But ultimately, it's the United States operating those Patriot missiles. So. Um, it remains to be seen what exactly is going to be the logistical formulation of the setup of those particular missiles if they are to be deployed to Ukraine. And it's yet another escalation in the caliber of weaponry and in the intimacy of the operational involvement in, between the U.S. and Ukraine. And so when you get these sort of allusions or um, gestures toward the idea of negotiations somehow being desirable, I think it's a good heuristic to disregard them unless and until there's some countervailing evidence that emerges that which shows that the U.S. is actually changing course or modifying its posture in a meaningful way that, to allow for negotiations as a focal point of the policy, because that really has not happened yet at all. In fact, if anything, it's the reverse, where everything is constantly escalating and getting more dug in. And you know that, that's i think that's the and yet, uh, yeah but and, and yet on the ground on the in the battlefield uh things are going now very badly for the ukrainians right-wing newspapers here pro-war newspapers here the telegraph the times are reporting that in bakhmut uh the uh the order from zelensky to stand and fight may have been a grave error, uh, the level of Ukrainian casualties uh, there. Uh, and that's since von der Leyen's admission that 100,000 dead soldiers uh, had already been laid in the ground in Ukraine. Well, there's probably another 10,000 dead on that particular front uh, right now. Um, and many say, including people who know uh, a lot about these things that that number of 100,000 is itself a considerable underestimation. So Russia's war of attrition uh, will presumably grind on uh, through the rest of this bitter winter. So how does it actually change things on the ground, Michael? Well, it's difficult to say. You know, I've made a habit of declining to get into too much speculation about the ins and outs or the granular details of what's happening on the ground tactically, because I simply am not in a position to verify through the fog of war much of what's reported on either quote side, right? So it's almost not worth pretending as though I have some sort of authoritative insight onto those particular questions. I can mostly talk with some authority, I guess, on, in terms of U.S. policy, right? Because that actually is the decisive factor here, ultimately. It's, I mean, they, the U.S. has all these slogans and cliches that Biden and others always mouth where they're saying, look, 
our policy is that only Ukraine can decide its own fate, or they say nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, as though it's Ukraine's solemn agency that must always be respected and honored, and everyone else just has to kind of lay in wait until they make a decision as to what they want to do, as though it's not the United States singularly providing the very basis for the war effort. I mean, if the U.S. were to withdraw its support right now, what do you think would happen? It seems like that probably would not redound to the benefit of Ukraine, right? So um, when I look, for example, at what's going on with this NDAA in Washington, right, that, that's going to be approved presumably by the Senate within a matter of a week or two, they're launching the Pentagon into what they call emergency procurement status, meaning that the, the Pentagon, for all intents and purposes, is now entering a wartime posture in terms of its um, distribution of contracts to these defense behemoths like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, uh, General Dynamics, and so forth, so that no bid contracts can now be made for services related to Ukraine, and also by extension relate, related to Taiwan, potentially. Um, because what they're trying to do is rapidly accelerate the uh, defense sector's mobilization into a full-fledged wartime production posture. And so that's with that's that's forward looking on the part of the pentagon and on the part of congress because they want they want it so that in six months or even a year the united states has built up its capacity to continue furnishing ukraine with all these armaments and, and even go well beyond what had or, have already been supplied um and you know there's always these reports now about how to the extent that the u.s has been limited at all in what it's willing to furnish Ukraine in terms of different weapon systems or munitions or what have you. It's only because the U.S. wants to retain its own capacity to potentially wage a direct war with Russia. So we're at a very precarious time here where I almost like to try to remind people, transport yourself back to about a year ago or two years ago. If you have been told that the U.S. would have given the green light for one of its client states to launch aerial bombardment attacks 300 miles inside Russia on the outskirts of Moscow on Russia's strategic nuclear fleet or a, on a base that houses part of Russia's strategic nuclear forces. That would have sounded mind-boggling, right? That sounded would have been almost inconceivable. It would have sounded like a bad Tom Clancy novel that you know got lost in the bargain bin somewhere. But that's the reality now, and we everyone's gotten a nerd to it. The policymakers are just excel. You know, they're putting their uh, foot to the gas in going down this road with no seeming desire to you know hit the brakes and. What's most dispositive, I think, in terms of looking at what the upcoming trajectory is, rather than sort of speculating about whether the attritional warfare on Russia's part will be successful or if Ukraine is suffering setbacks or what have you, um, look at what the prime mover is doing. That's the United States. They are rapidly accelerating their industrial capacity of the defense sector to provide limitless support to its client, that being Ukraine, and also take into account this separate potential uh, Pacific theater in Taiwan with Iran, uh, with, um, against China. So they're preparing for global warfare on a scale that's virtually unprecedented since the end of, the, of World War II.
And that is that should be seen as extremely jarring, should be seen by Congress and the media as something to really delve deeply and seriously and gravely into the details of the purposes of oversight for accountability, for just basic bookkeeping, but nobody seems interested in it because there's not not really a whole lot of dissent tolerated on this issue at all. And the, even journalists just seem completely placid and supine and just willing to accept whatever is fed to them by the yeah. Defense Department. Whereas under if it was if this was the Donald Trump administration, it would be incredibly taboo and denounced instantaneously if they were doing what they do now, which is just constantly peddle Pentagon press releases as though it's news. I mean, it's the basics of journalism or the, the basic kind of norm of journalism that they're violating. But because the cause of Ukraine is seen as a, a incredibly righteous and unimpeachable, then most journalistic standards completely go by the wayside. And it's, it's, it's leading us down a path of destruction. The eve of destruction. Michael Tracy, thanks very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. I could talk to you all night. Let's uh, hit the phones. Lance is in Canada, but wants to talk about Ukraine. Go ahead, Lance. Oh, I just want to, well, I did want to start by thanking you for actually being such a beacon of decency and temperance. Um, I guess, okay, this, this Ukraine thing where we shot, they shot missiles into Russia and they blew up a, a nuclear bomber. Uh, this, this to me, well, I guess having some expertise in that area, I would say that blowing up nuclear ordnance with conventional explosives isn't dangerous, but it does, it does disturb us mentally. But what is absolutely dangerous in the Ukraine right now and has been dangerous all along is the six-unit Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. That is radioactive material, yeah. tons and tons of it that is above grade. That plant is off the grid right now in a war zone. It's undergone marine attacks. It's undergone shelling. And at this point, that plant will be on relying on tankers for cooling, fuel tankers to bring in fuel for pumps, diesel fuel. And that is an extremely dangerous situation. And that is a freshwater reservoir that supplies millions of people. And it's also the Black Sea, which is won't provide the dilution of the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean. So that to me... And by the way, Lance, nobody even talks about this. Yeah, it's complete madness. Nobody even talks about it. Where's all the Greens? Where's all the COP29 or whatever it is? Where's all the greenery and wokery? Where are all these people never done telling us about global warming and climate change? There's a nuclear plant being bombed by our ally Ukraine right now. What happens if we have another Chernobyl, Chernobyl times 10? And they're, they're forcing us to get rid of our boilers. They're forcing us into electric cars whilst their zipped-up mouths are silent when it comes to the potential nuclear disaster in Ukraine. Lance, thanks for that call in Canada, where it's cold. Let's go to John in California, where it's warm. Go ahead, John. <clears throat> okay, thank you for taking my call. George, um, I, I 
uh, clicked on the video because it, it mentioned Helen Haiti. And um, as neoliberalism, as I understand it, is when, uh, in this case, the U.S. <clears throat> wants to, uh, uh, it has an interest in a foreign country. It's because they want to replace a government with one that will uh, permit Western corporations to come in and steal all their natural resources. So I'm wondering, um, I, I, uh, I, I may be wrong, but I think their natural resource is limestone for concrete, um, but is also cheap labor. Do you, uh, do you know what it is exactly that the U.S. has an interest in Haiti for? Well, uh, it has a strategic, strategic interest in uh, Haiti not falling into someone else's uh, orbit to someone else's uh, area of influence. And that's obvious. Cuba and Venezuela uh, would uh, be very happy to assist uh, Haiti drag itself up from the hell uh, that it has now been living in for decades. And indeed, uh, for most of, uh, of my lifetime, uh, for a long time under the tyranny of of, uh, of Papa Doc Duvalier, followed by his son, Baby Doc Duvalier, a brief and glorious period under Aristide, and then American invasion, overthrow of the government, and then this uh, massive uh, downward spiral that they've been on ever since the overthrow of Aristide. So that's one reason. But I think we heard a reason tonight from Dan Cohen I was unaware of it, I'll uh, confess, that actually uh, oil and gas uh, off the coast of Haiti may very well be an additional and spectacularly uh, important reason for U.S. Uh, concern. John, thanks for the call. Uh, let's talk with Tom in St. Louis. Who could resist going to St. Louis? Go on, Tom. Oh, hi, George. At first, I just want to say... Um Thank you so much. It really opened my, my eyes up to a lot of things happening, you know, within my government here in the U.S. and also abroad. I guess briefly about the Haiti Thank situation. You. It is crazy how there's such a double standard when it comes to U.S. imperialism and then also Russia's conflict in uh, Ukraine. Yeah, of course, it's one of, uh, it's one of uh, 500 uh, examples that we could give of double standards. This sovereignty uh, cannot be uh, cannot be impinged. It's sacred, said uh, Blinken, except when it comes to uh, the invasions and occupations that the United States itself mounts, often without the permission of the United Nations, sometimes against the decisions of the United Nations. So this so-called rules-based international order is laughable. I talked earlier, Tom, about the situation in Kosovo. What is Kosovo? Who decided that Kosovo could be a breakaway from a sovereign and independent country, a member of the United Nations? Who decided that? What international law? decided that, that having destroyed Yugoslavia, we then destroy and partition the remaining, the last remaining part of Yugoslavia. Now, why I bring it up is that there's trouble brewing there right now. 
and the United States is uh, determined uh, that the Albanian uh, entity which they have created there uh, in Kosovo will ethnically cleanse uh, the remaining Serbs uh, that live there, significant number of them, in historic and religiously important places in uh, Kosovo. So Haiti is, is no different in that regard. Thanks, Tom, for the call. Nick is in Los Angeles. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Nick. Hi, George. How are you? I hope you're well. Um, a little World All good. Cup Thanks. conversation just to round it out now it's coming to a close. And I know you're a big football fan, Yeah. as, as am I, yeah. a lifelong Manchester City fan ever since the 70s. But uh, you and I have witnessed many travesties Mix. with English, English football. Um, that being, they always seem to want to shoot for second best because they pick terrible managers. And the greatest manager in the English football game that you and I probably recognize to be, who never became England manager, was the wonderful one and only Brian Clough. And I just, yeah. what, what is it with the English, and I'm English, um, and, or British, uh, what is it, why, why do they always want to come second best? You were one of the best MPs ever in the House of Commons. They had, could have had the best England manager ever and won maybe one or two World Cups with Brian Clough. Why do they always want to come second best? What's going on with the English? Well, they, they, they didn't like Brian Clough for some of the reasons why, uh, similar reasons to why I never became uh, Prime Minister. Uh, and it's kind of you to make the comparison. Uh, the, the, the reason they didn't pick Brian Clough is that he wasn't a yes man. He wouldn't go along with the, uh, with the Blazers, not the Glazers, the Blazers at the Football Association, hidebound, conservative and second rate. Uh, Brian Clough was a man that would settle for nothing less than first rate. And uh, he was never given the job for that reason. Now, I happen to think that Gareth Southgate is the Sir Keir Starmer of football management, a block exactly. of wood, tactically inept, uh, uh, unlikely to be a motivator in the camp and in the dressing room. I also think he made some terrible uh, choices in, uh, in the teams that he put out and the subs that he named and when he brought on those subs. I'm a United supporter, you're a City supporter, but how come Marcus Rashford, the top scorer, got four minutes in the, in the last game that they had to win to progress and face uh, Morocco if they had uh, progressed and therefore with a very good shout of reaching the World Cup final. So uh, these kind of inexplicable decisions. Madison, why bring Madison and not uh, play him? Madison's one of the most exciting and innovative and creative uh, players in the country, but he didn't actually uh, feature, he didn't figure. So uh, apparently uh, Sir Gareth, as he will soon be, trust me on that, is, uh, is going to leave, he's going to quit. And I hear a chorus of people uh, now saying, the manager has got to be English. Why has he got to be English? The manager of all kinds of international teams at the World Cup is not from the country he's managing. What matters is that you get the best manager. 
not a manager that happened to be born within the sound of the bow bells. And Carragher from Liverpool is one of those uh, arguing that the manager has to be English. Even though if Liverpool had been managed by English managers, we wouldn't even ever have heard of it. If it were not for Shankly and if it were not for Klopp in Scottish and German respectively, nobody would ever have heard of Liverpool as a football power. Nick, thanks for giving me the opportunity to say that, and I'm glad that though you're in Los Angeles, you still know that the game is actually called football and not something else. Comments coming in on YouTube chat. Abel Malcolm says, very much appreciate the truths being spoken here, as rare as diamonds. The mother of all talk shows lives up to its name. Most kind of you. I appreciate that uh, very much. Michael Witter says, No, George, we are not in the war. A few brainless mercenaries doesn't indicate direct involvement. Michael, you must have written that before you actually listened. It's not mercenaries. It's the head of the Royal Marine Commandos who said we're in the war. It's not mercenaries, even though most of these mercenaries aren't really mercenaries at all, just like the volunteers are not really volunteers at all, Polish volunteers in particular. It's not mercenaries we're talking about, Michael. It's the Royal Marine Commandos. No mean team, as you and I both know. Charles Wadham says, GG, where do you think the US got its constitution? From England, mate. Charles, eh? Got its constitution from England? We don't have a constitution. Didn't have one then in 1776 and don't have one now in 2022. Charles, what are you talking about? Super chats are still coming in. Pieter Landsbergen, four euros 99. Thank you, Pieter. Michael Hortzman, US dollars, 4.99. Here's to a possible Friday night Moats America show. That's my big project for the new year. Pat Daly, 50 euros. Gosh, Pat, it's the second time you've done that. God bless you. I really appreciate it. Cov FF channel, £1.79. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Golden silence, US dollars too. Keep speaking the truth. Now back to the phone lines. Ira is in Brooklyn on Haiti. Go ahead, Ira. Okay. Well, what I'm saying, going to say is applicable to both Haiti, uh, Ukraine, and all the other hot spots around the world where, where uh, U.S. imperialism is trying to dictate to the workers of the world how they're going to live. Anyway, uh, what I wanted to say is that, that uh, we are headed towards a, a global war, very well might be a nuclear war. Uh, and I don't think, I think while people are terrified about that idea, we also have to remember that out of all the previous wars, major wars have come revolutions and the people have r rose up 
and, and made a, a revolution in Russia in, in 1917 to get rid of the tyrannical czars. Uh, the the uh, World War II brought revolution in China. Uh, the next revolution, I think, might bring, bring revolution in the United States and maybe globally. Maybe we can have an egalitarian communist world where everybody, where money is abolished and where, where everybody is uh, uh, who works and everybody will have the opportunity to work and earn uh, not money, but earn everything, all the wealth that we as uh, as a laboring class produce. And that's what we need. That's the well, only uh, way we can get rid of Ira, racism. If it's, and uh, yeah. Uh, Ira, if it's a nuclear war, of course there won't be any revolutions because there won't be any people to make a revolution. So your insouciance in contemplating it in the hope that revolution is the result is, uh, I'm afraid, one that I don't share. Uh, let's uh, take some more callers. Raphael is in Vermont on Ukraine. Go ahead, Raphael. Yes, uh, uh, nice. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I have something very simple I want to explain to people. I see nobody in the media is covering it. Uh, from my background, I work in the battalion division. So that means in the Marine Corps, in the U.S. Marine Corps. So that means I know how war are fought. And you cannot, that war in Ukraine, it's, it's nonsense. And, and nobody is telling, is saying uh, uh, everything like that the West is doing, NATO, all these things. It's not making any sense. Let me explain you something. You see, like, there is something they, they, they name cohesion in the military unit. And that in any war, any kind of thing, everything has to tell a story. Everything has to follow a plan. Everything has to have a, a, a reason why. You cannot tell me at, after nine months of fighting, this is the time you just decide you're going to drop a bunch of Patriot missiles. So what, so what exactly are you going to do with them now? And, and, and who, what exactly, if, 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 do you think if those missiles were going to do something detrimental to Russia, Russia will let you, will give you time to put them together and install them and no. say, hey, you want to hit Moscow? No, they will, they will take them out. So everything these people are doing i want everybody to pay attention well I, look to uh, i think uh, that's that's not the first time that you've made that point but it's the most uh, powerful time that you've made that point the reality is that this escalation can only force a bigger escalation from russia for example if these patriots are to be deployed in ukraine they'll have to be as michael tracy was making clear and which I know myself, there will have to be a substantial U.S. military presence in Ukraine to operate the missiles. That means NATO are in the war. That means Russia will have to take them out. And take them out not when they have already been established uh, around Kiev, but to take them out 
the second that they cross the border, maybe even before they cross the border. Russia will have to attempt to seal Ukraine's border for the purpose of stopping these uh, constant uh, escalating transfers of military hardware coming from NATO countries. And I gave one uh, example of how they could and very well might, and maybe even sooner than you think, that Russia will have to enter Ukraine from Belarus. And if it does so, it's only a couple of hours to Kiev. It's only a couple of hours from the Ukrainian borders. It can seal the Ukrainian borders against the transfer of any further military technology. And then what is the West going to do? Well, they're not going to go immediately to war because they don't have any ammunition left because they gave it all to Ukraine, which has either expended it or wasted it or sold it on the black market. And the inventories of all the NATO countries are practically empty. The cupboard is practically bare. So NATO is not in a position to stop Russia from stopping them from constantly escalating the war. Now, as I said earlier, Putin plainly doesn't want to do these things, or he would have already done them, but there's plenty of people in the Russian military, in the Russian political class, in the Kremlin itself, who think that Putin's patience is ill-founded, and that if he doesn't act decisively and quickly, then the danger of World War III is increased, not reduced. Thanks uh, for that call, Raf. Uh, let's take a last call, alas, from Eric in London. Go ahead, Eric. Oh, hello, George. How are you? I hope you're well. All good. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling. What would you like to say? Um, I want to talk to you about the Labour Party because um, and I know you obviously you remember the Labour Party and you're with them for many years and left when you were disillusioned. Um, you said last time on your show that you thought they were, you know, more evil than the Conservative Party. And I know they stand very different to your line of thinking as, as they are now. But I mean, it's looking obvious that they probably will win the next election. And I wanted to ask you well, a couple of things. Wouldn't it be better to have a Labour government that's centralist than a Conservative Party that is as awful as they are uh, and damaging many people's lives? And also, you know, wouldn't it, I think they don't really have many options or chance because if they were to stay as left wing as they were, they won't get into power. And I think if you, for example, if you've got 10 principles, wouldn't it be better to get into power and implement five of them rather than just, um, you know, just standing your ground? I mean, I understand that you, you and many people are disappointed they have become as central as they have, but wouldn't you rather see them power than in opposition to have the Conservatives for many more years to come? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, thanks for the call, uh, and these will have to be my uh, closing remarks as well as an answer to you. I, I flatly reject every premise that you put to me. First of all, the obvious one, you say that they're definitely going to win the next election. I don't believe that that is true. They have a big lead in the public opinion polls, but that lead is falling. 
uh, and falling actually quite significantly. They are down three points in today's poll. The Conservatives are up three points. So the gap is closing. And it is two years exactly until the next general election. And as Harold Wilson reminded us, uh, a week is a long time in politics, and that was before the advent of new media. So uh, that's 104 weeks of politics still to go. So I don't accept that Labour is guaranteed to win the next general election. I don't believe that Labour is centrist, uh, whatever that means. Uh, I believe that Labour is an anti-Labour party following uh, neoliberal economic policies that will be as bad, if not worse, for the working people and for the poor and for the pensioners in Britain than the Conservatives are. Secondly, the Conservative government are not, as you inferred, you didn't say it, but you inferred it, the Conservative government are not right-wing. They're not more right-wing than Keir Starmer's front bench. As a matter of fact, they're spending more public money than Keir Starmer's front bench would be prepared to spend. They're making more public investment uh, than Keir Starmer's front bench would uh, be prepared to make. Neither of them are remotely, not remotely, close to what this country needs, but one is not better than the other. You say if I have 10 principles, as a matter of fact, I do have 10 principles. They are codified in the 10-point program of the party that I lead, which is the Workers' Party of Britain. I commend it to you at least to study. Uh, and none of what Labour stands for could remotely be described as a principle. Principle and Labour cannot be spoken in the same sentence. In a few seconds, let me summarize this. The nurses are on strike tomorrow. The railway workers and the postal workers are already on strike. The Conservatives are determined to smash those strikes. But so is Labour. And the difference is the unions are funding Labour, not funding the Conservatives. So it's about the wolf and the wolf in sheep's clothing. I will always regard the wolf dressed as a sheep as even more dangerous than the wolf that honestly presents itself as a representative of the system against which I stand. I'll be back, God willing, on Sunday for the mothership, the mother of all talk shows. I hope that you'll join me then. I hope you'll help me find a sponsor for the midweek show. It's been going great, getting great numbers. It would be a real pity if we had to close it down again. Thanks for joining me. See you Sunday. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.